0: We are in the final chapter of the book of Habakkuk, which, like many of the Psalms, has a title. Generally, chapters in the Bible don't have titles, but the Psalms do, and Habakkuk 3 does. It's found in the first verse, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigayimoth, as we saw last week. Several things should be noted that Habakkuk is identified as a prophet. If we had any doubts about it, they are settled by the title of this last chapter. And then the word Shagainath. It is the plural of a form found in the title of Psalm 70. uh, Psalm 7. Sorry. It means to reel or to stagger like a drunken individual. In both this chapter and in Psalm 7, we have. Great emotion. We have great passion, if you wish. With a rapid change of emotion as well. It's a roller coaster of sorts. Both Psalm 7 and this chapter can be described as having been written or constructed, composed under strong emotional pressure. This leads to two threads that I'm using as guidelines in studying this prayer. The first is actually found after the second, but I will mention it first. And it is in verse number 20 of chapter 2. It is the admonition to stand in silence before the Lord. Verse 20 But the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. Interestingly enough, this is something that we read in two other prophets. In Zephaniah 1 7, Be silent before the sovereign Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. And then Zechariah 2.13. Be still before the Lord all mankind because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The image that we have in Habakkuk and in Zephaniah and Zechariah is that of the presence of God. The prophets speak as those who are in the presence of God which is symbolized by the temple. The Lord is in his holy temple, Habakkuk tells us. His holy dwelling in Zephaniah. And then finally in Zechariah, it is the sacrifice. He's prepared a sacrifice. It is in the presence of God that we pray. There is to be reverence. And this, I think, is exhibited, if you wish, by silence. That we do not come into the Lord's presence noisily. We don't come in presumptuously. We come with fear and trembling. And there is a time for silence. Habakkuk's prayer opens with that reverence. If you look at verse number 2, Lord, that's the name of God. Rather than writing Jehovah or Yahweh, they would write the Lord. I am who I am. The God who is unchanged and unchanging. The God who is known and yet unknown. He is infinite, we are finite, and yet prayer is a real reality. And Habakkuk speaks to God in prayer. He says... I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. As I mentioned last week, I think the NIV fails to convey what is intended. That is a conversation. The way that it's written in the NIV, it's as though Habakkuk is standing back and just saying, yeah, I've been reading this book. I've been hearing these reports. But it is, in fact, a give and take. God has spoken to him in chapter 2, telling him what he will do to the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, yeah, I've heard you. I've heard what you have to say. And because he heard what God had to say, he stands in awe. King James says, I was afraid. And the ESV says, I fear. There is a place for silence, and there is a place for reverence and for awe. Habakkuk was in awe because of what God was about to do. The prayer continues, as we saw last week, with three requests. Renew them or revive them in our day. That is, bring to life, into life, the reality of what you have said. In our time, make them known. That is, Habakkuk prays that this will happen soon. But the third is quite powerful. In wrath, remember mercy. We saw last week God's character reveals both wrath and mercy. The second thread is found in chapter 2, verse 4, and we spent several weeks on this, the issue of faith. The righteous will live by his faith. And As we've seen, faith involves the four parts of our being, our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If faith is perceiving and believing the truth and living as though it were the truth, we are to have faith with our hearts, that is, in our thoughts, With our souls, that is, with our emotions. With our minds, that is, our intellect and our disposition. And finally, with our strength. This is where it all meets the road, if you wish. It meets the external world. In each part, we are to have faith. In our hearts, we are to be humble. In our souls, we are to trust. In our minds, we are to believe. And it is with our strength that we are to act on the truth. Last week, we focused a bit on the role or the place of emotion in perceiving and believing the truth. We should keep in mind that Habakkuk is writing this down. He is expressing in words what he is feeling. And yet words oftentimes are inadequate to explain completely what it is that we are feeling. Something is lost in the translation. But words are what we have. And Habakkuk writes down this prayer. In this prayer, we hear great emotion, but we should not be surprised. Our heritage is one of extreme emotions. When it comes to faith and our emotions, where do these come into play? And I would suggest, I did last week, primarily in prayer. There is private prayer, and this is oftentimes where the great battles are fought. It's, It's us and God. Then there's family prayer, where the family gathers together, and oftentimes they have uh, issues that they share that they bring before God. And then there's public prayer prayer and worship. These are the battles that, as a congregation, we face. And even today, we have prayed for our sister Lonnie. Um, We engage, and our emotions are involved. We care deeply. There are times when we despair, there are times when we are thankful. Our emotions are definitely involved in this. It may be, and I'll confess this, that my perception in this matter is colored um, by our study of Habakkuk, the roller coaster of emotions that we hear. But I do think that emotions are an important part of our faith, and they are to be an important part of our prayers. In the rest of chapter three, beginning in verse number three, Habakkuk rehearses from history examples of God's wrath and God's mercy. He said, in wrath, remember mercy. And then it is as though in an instant he is shown the history of God's people, how God has shown both wrath and mercy. Uh, Listen as I read, read uh, beginning in verse number 13. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him and pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed torrents of water swept by the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens as the glint of your flash, uh, flying arrows at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. What we find here is God giving Habakkuk the gift of seeing history as he does, seeing it in a split second. One who is not bound by space and time, Habakkuk sees events that are centuries apart, and interestingly enough, he doesn't see them in order, in chronological or sequential order. What he witnesses, and this is important for our study today, is violence and deliverance. Or as he said earlier, wrath and mercy. All divine deliverances from every form of evil, body and soul, property and honor, are to be seen as one deliverance that was accomplished on the cross. They all point in that direction. It is because of what Christ has suffered that there is deliverance. What Habakkuk sees is, in fact, in the past. It's not sequential, but it is past. It's historical. But there are tremendous futuristic overtones that point to the coming of the Lord. It begins in verse number 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. This verse is very reminiscent of the Song of Moses, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 33. Moses said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south from his mountain slopes. If you're familiar with geography of the region at all, you might think that Habakkuk in fact is confused because one should start at Sinai, and then move to Mount Paran, and from there you get to Teman. Teman, by the way, is the name of Esau's eldest grandson from his eldest son, and Esau himself was the elder of the twins. Um, Teman is is closer to Israel. Sinai is down toward Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula. One could even wonder if Moses was a bit confused because he begins in Seir, which is Edom or Timon, and then he works his way down to Sinai. What is going on? Are these men geographically challenged? What's going on? I would suggest that oftentimes, and particularly in Israel, they might be tempted to limit God to Sinai. But the picture that we are given is that while the law was given to Moses on Sinai, his glory and his holiness was not limited to the Sinai Peninsula, but spread across the region. His holiness is seen in the law that he gave. His holiness is revealed in his glory. And as we read, his glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. The title, The Holy One, by the way, which we find in verse number three, is found throughout the Old Testament, but most particularly in the book of Isaiah, where we find it around 30 times. And I would remind you that it is what we hear said of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was casting out an evil spirit. An evil spirit that had possessed a man cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The Holy One is the Redeemer. I find it noteworthy that Habakkuk's barely into his prayer. One could even say he's two lines into his prayer in verse number three. And then we have Sila. We are unclear about Sila, but it seems to have been a liturgical term. And it, we think that it was, in fact, an, a word of instruction to the congregation for them to be quiet. And then the instruments that are playing are to play And they are to play loudly, fortissimo. You've been singing, be quiet now, and let the instruments play. It's very similar, I think, to what we do in our worship when Tom plays between the next to the last and the last verse of a song. This word, Sila, is found 74 times in the book of Psalms. It is only here that we find it outside the book of Psalms. And it's usually found at the end of a paragraph or a statement of strong emotions, and I think that's what we find here because the paragraph has just begun. I could almost imagine that as the people are singing this, and they are singing of the glory of God as it shines across the earth, that they in fact cover their eyes or bow their heads. Sila, they are quiet before God as the instruments play, and they think about what they've just said. God's glory, in fact. So when they, keep, when they start singing again, and they sing about his glory, yeah, that makes sense. It's not just Sinai, but Timon, Mount Paran. God's glory is all over the planet. His splendor, they continue to sing, was like the sunrise, rays flash from his hand, where his power was hidden. God's not limited by geography. But then there seems to be a dark turn, If you look at verse number five, plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. Yeah, I think I like the part about sunrise better. Um, I mean, when you think of God's glory, do you think of pestilence? Do you think of plague? What do you think of when you hear of plagues beyond our situation today? Well, in Egypt. When Moses was to bring the people of Israel out, there were the ten plagues that showed the work of God. The water was turned to blood. The plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, the plague of flies. And then there was a plague on the livestock. There was a plague of boils, a plague of hail and fire, a plague of locusts, and then a plague of darkness. And finally, the death of all the firstborn of Egypt. In delivering his people, the Holy One of Israel let loose ten plagues on Egypt. In redeeming his people, trying to correct his people and make them holy, God at different times in the wilderness let loose plagues on them. The one that comes to mind is in Numbers 21, where he sent snakes among the people. the holiness of God, when God comes, there may, in fact, be plague and pestilence. There may be violence in order to bring about redemption, to bring about deliverance. Habakkuk's prayer continues in verse number 6. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled, and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. Last week in the prayer of confession, we read from Psalm 90. Gracious Father, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. God who is all-powerful. God who is eternal. But we go more to a negative sign again in verse number 7. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress the dwellings of Midian in anguish. This is a part of the history that Habakkuk is shown. In Judges chapter 3, uh, Israel had turned away from God, and for eight years, he allowed uh, someone from northwest Mesopotamia, Cushan, uh, to oppress them and to rule over them. And then he delivered, the Lord delivered them through Othniel, who was a relative of Caleb. And then in Judges chapter 6 and 7, For seven years, Israel was under the hand of Midian, and God delivered them through Gideon. There is, in fact, a darkness, if you wish. There is plague, there is pestilence. But through this, God brings about redemption, and He brings about deliverance. Now we come to verses 8 through 11. And this is about the anger of God. And Habakkuk wants to know, is God angry with creation, with nature? Verse number eight, were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? In the previous verses, we read of plagues. We're reminded of what happened in Egypt. The first plague was the turning of water into blood. That I think is what Habakkuk refers to with God being angry with the rivers, his wrath against the streams. And then the verse that we saw in verse number six, God shakes the mountains, he shakes the earth, the ancient mountains crumbled and age old hills collapsed. The things that have been there seemingly forever Are crumbled. And Habakkuk wants to know Are you angry with creation? Are you angry with the rivers, with the streams, with the mountains? Was God angry with the river Nile? Was He angry with the Red Sea? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? When God destroyed Pharaoh and his army? No answer is given. The implied answer is negative, that God's not angry with them, but that God expressed his anger and his wrath through various parts of creation. And remember what we heard earlier, that in wrath, remember mercy. These things that were meant as judgment and destruction for some meant salvation for others. So when God brought the plagues on Egypt, it opened the door for Israel to be let go. And they could make their way to the promised land. And then with the Red Sea, Israel panicked. They're like, what's going to happen? God opens the Red Sea. They pass through. But then God destroys Pharaoh and his army. Um, Usually when we think of the Red Sea, we think of Pharaoh and his chariots. But that's not how Habakkuk is shown. This is not what he sees. It is God's chariots. It is God's horses, the Lord's horses and his victorious chariots. Just a side note, other translations have uh, chariots of salvation. Well, victory brings salvation for God's people. The Lord brought salvation to Israel when he rode against Pharaoh and his army. The military and battle imagery continues in verse number nine. You uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows. Selah, in the ancient world, a bow was either put into a sheep on the side of the chariot or in a sheep in the back of a warrior. And he would pull out the bow and then he would begin to shoot arrows. Well, the Lord's bow is not in a sheep. He's brought it out. He's ready to do battle. And he has called for many arrows. Again, this recalls something that Moses had said earlier in in Deuteronomy 32. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live forever. When I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps in judgment i will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me i will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh the blood of the slain and the captives the heads of the enemy leaders here is god's wrath and appropriately at this point again we have sila the congregation needs to be silent be quiet while the instruments play and those who have been singing consider what in fact it is that they have just sung. Then there is more language of the violence seemingly against creation. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, torrents of water swept by the deep roared and lifted up its waves on high. This calls to mind the great flood in which Noah and his family are spared. But at this point, it seems that Habakkuk's view is earth-bound. He's just talking about things here. But if you look in verse number 11, he goes beyond the earth. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. As God is doing battle against his enemies, as he is doing violence in his wrath against his enemies, even the sun and the moon stop. Okay. This points, I think, to the incident in Joshua 10 when Israel was fighting against the Amorites and they were winning a victory, but they were losing daylight. And so uh, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of aijalon And the result was So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. Habakkuk is thinking to the past, but we are after Habakkuk and we know about the death of Jesus. And we read in Matthew 27 from the sixth hour, until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. The earth shook and the rocks split. In Luke's account, now it was about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. I think we are far too scientific for our own good. We're like, yeah, that's not really possible. That's not how it works. The earth isn't the center of things. I think what Habakkuk sees is God's wrath, God's glory, and it's seen in all of creation. Now we come to the rescue part. There's still some more wrath, but it's now leading toward rescue. Verse 12, in wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. This is an avenging wrath. God strides through the earth on a punitive expedition to destroy the nations. And yet at the same time, he is on a rescue mission. Verse 13, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Selah. Selah, indeed. The words take your breath away. Deliver, save, save. You crushed, you stripped him from head to foot. Again, it reminds one of the Song of Moses. I stopped at a particular verse, verse number 42 in Deuteronomy 33. Let me read the next verse. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. There's a principle that runs through this prayer of Habakkuk. Have you noticed it? Have you caught sight of it? It's there in the examples of deliverance and redemption that Habakkuk seemingly saw in an instant. It's there in the stories of Noah, the great flood, and of Moses, the plagues, of Joshua with the Amorites, of Othniel with Cushan, Gideon with the Midianites, and more. This is the principle that in the accomplishing of deliverance and redemption, there is much violence and struggle. In the story of Noah, the Lord killed all of mankind, but preserved and delivered Noah and his family. With Israel, the Lord killed all the firstborn of Egypt and then Pharaoh and his army, but Israel was delivered. This is the lesson that Habakkuk struggles to learn. This principle points ahead to the Lord Jesus. Isaiah wrote of it in Isaiah 53 Surely he has taken up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was crushed for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was brought, that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. By the way, in our hymn today, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, it's taken from this passage. Without the violence of the death of Jesus, there is no deliverance. There is no salvation. The punishment that brought us peace, peace with God, was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. In Hebrews 9.22, we read, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And somehow, I think we've toned this down. We've sort of sanitized it. Um, You you go to the doctor and have blood taken and here's some blood. Think of the sacrificial system that we find in the book of Leviticus. Was there not violence in the sacrificing of these animals? And now think of the death of the Lord Jesus. Was there not great violence in his death? We'll look at these verses, the Lord willing, next week, but look at verses 14 through 16. With his own spear you pierced his head, when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. I've argued that in fact the book of Habakkuk and particularly this prayer is an emotional roller coaster. I don't know that I have emphasized that sufficiently in th- this sermon. If I could, though, in one word, it would be the word Selah. Because look at every time Selah is mentioned, the three times it's mentioned in this chapter, right before it comes, these hard hitting words at which you can only close your eyes or put your hand over your mouth, bow your head, it's just so powerful. This isn't just like having tea and just having this wonderful light conversation. This is deeply emotional. Habakkuk seemed to be an emotional person. He was indignant in chapter one at the wickedness of his people, but he was horrified at the punishment that God told him about. He sort of wondered about God's wisdom, and yet he was patient and long-suffering, and he was filled with joy at the promised deliverance. But in this chapter, we see him having fear at God's majesty. There was, however, worship and adoration of his glory and joy of salvation, but there's still that, those deep, valleys to which you go when he recalls what God has done in the past. Lord willing, we'll look at this next week. But such were the deep and violent emotions rolling over Habakkuk, like surging waves with highs and lows, that the word Selah has to be said. Just be quiet. And think of what God has done And what God will do The question might be asked Damon, is the violence over? Well I think the answer is found In another question Is our redemption complete? It will not be complete Until the Lord Jesus returns So there will be dark days There will be difficult days But by God's grace, will we get to the end of the journey as Habakkuk will, as we'll see next week, where we can trust God? James tells us near the beginning of his letter, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There is struggle, perhaps even violence, but this brings about maturity. God must, in fact, bring the Babylonians to judge Judah because of their wickedness, but out of Judah will come a remnant. And we're still five, six centuries away, but from this remnant will come the Lord Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. Peter does something very similar in 1 Peter 1, as James does. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I think we may struggle with this. Why does there have to be the struggle? Why does there have to be the violence? And yet in other aspects of life, I think we see this. Go to the gym, no pain, no gain, we're told. You have to suffer in order to receive the result that you want. Or think of a woman who is giving birth, who goes through great pains, but then a child is delivered. Habakkuk, has to learn this on this emotional roller coaster. We do as well. That God may do things we do not understand, things that we're really not happy about. But the end result is salvation, it's deliverance, it's redemption. And by God's grace, as we struggle in prayer with our emotions, with our minds, every part of our being, may we come to see that God knows best. And as we were told of Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray together. Follow the picture we have in our mind, the narrative we have in our mind, Is is quite different. We don't imagine uh, bloodletting, slaughter, plague, pestilence, floods, mountains crumbling. We would prefer a a much more gentle path. It's quite strange that we think this way because in other aspects of our lives, we've known that there was pain and violence. I think in my own case of having teeth pulled as the dentist struggled to pull it out. The end result was good, the end of pain, the end of suffering. The Lord Jesus had to suffer that we might have life. He suffered greatly, and not simply physically. As we sang in the hymn today, the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. As we struggle emotionally, perhaps even intellectually, with the difficulties we and others face. May we come to see, like Habakkuk, that this is the pattern. That it is through struggle and violence that deliverance and salvation comes. I think it's easy to say this. It's much more difficult to wrap our head around it. come to see the truth of it. May your spirit work in our hearts. And as a result, may he give us peace. May we remember the words, in wrath, remember mercy. We thank you for this first day of a new week, your day, where we could worship you. May your spirit and your grace be with us throughout this day, throughout the week. May we be reminded from time to time of how much you love us and you care for us. How merciful you have been to us. All this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.